0: What comes next in the American political culture? And who gets to choose? From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, it's Thursday, August 10th. This is In The Moment. Coming up this hour, Neil Fulton, Dean of the USD Knudsen School of Law. We'll talk about polarization and a culture of permanent political outrage. More importantly, we talk about possible pathways forward and how to choose them. South Dakota journalist Kevin Wooster is with us today. Governor Kristi Noem says he is lying about hesitation among Game Fish and Parks employees to talk to the media. We'll talk about ethics and politics and censorship. Plus, mending cancer disparities in American Indians because where you live should not determine how you fight cancer. That's coming up in just a few minutes. We are broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh, you're in the moment. Last fall was a brutal RSV season for South Dakota babies, so as we head into this fall, parents may be interested to learn we have an extra preventative tool available to keep infants safe. The CDC has approved the first-ever RSV vaccine. And recommends it for all infants under eight months of age. Dr. David Basil is a pediatrician and internal medicine specialist at Avera Health, and he returns to the program on the phone to talk about this new recommendation. Dr. Basil, welcome. Thanks for being here.
1: Thank you. So, yeah, RSV is kind of a Hot topic uh, this
0: year. Yeah. R- remind, I remember talking about this last year with the increased hospitalizations from so many infants. Remind people or new parents who don't remember last year, how bad did it get?
1: Yeah. So RSV or respiratory syncytial virus is one of the common viruses that's circulating. And for most uh, older children and, and adults, it doesn't cause that many problems, but when you've got really small airways, particularly early in your life, it can cause some inflammation in those airways and cause quite a bit of problems breathing, and probably the number one cause of hospitalizations during the winter season in infants and toddlers, and causes a disease called bronchiolitis in those age ranges.
0: Yeah, and we were looking at hospital capacity last year and everything, but this year is a different story. Tell me about the new vaccine and why it matters.
1: Yeah, So there's actually multiple different uh, products coming out right now depending on the age range, and I'll maybe start with the oldest age range, which is actually with adults. So there's two new RSV vaccines for older Adults, And so two were approved for ages 60 and older that they may get vaccinated for RSV. And again, as I said, in those younger age ranges, it um, causes some problems and then doesn't cause too many problems through midlife. But then as your immune system gets weaker in old life, it again starts to cause problems. And I think it kills about 5 10,000 individuals over the age of 65 annually. And so now there's two vaccines for the oldest age range that you can get vaccinated against RS, RSV. So that's one big change. And that's a may. So people at higher risk that are older nursing homes, have harder lung problems, um, have significant problems with respiratory infections. So there's one for older age ranges. In the younger age ranges, there's a couple different options that uh, should be coming to market. There's actually one uh, coming soon that you can actually immunize pregnant moms with an RX, RSV vaccine uh, that will protect the infants in those first six months of life. So that can can provide good protection that first six months of life. And then there's products now coming to market that get you in that six months to you know a year time frame that you can go after the infant themselves. And so we're expecting all of these different uh, approaches to be available probably sometime in September or a little bit later.
0: So for people who have been through the pandemic and remember emergency authorization vaccines and mRNA vaccines, it might be a good time to go back to the basics here and say, this is new on the market, but it is tested how? What do we know about this vaccine already?
1: Yeah, so these are not the newer generation mRNA vaccines. These are more conventional type of approaches, more traditional vaccines, and so they're related more to some of the older vaccines that we have rather than the mRNA vaccines. And so they are a little bit more of a traditional approach, and they were studied, I believe, somewhere around 60,000 individuals. For I know for the adult vaccines. I think there's about a total of 60,000 folks that were tested on. And so they had pretty large-scale testing um, that they went after to get the approvals on because we had more time uh, rather than when COVID, when the stakes were so high and we had so many people dying and there was such an urgent need. With RSV, this has been a long-term project. These these vaccines have been uh, in the pipeline for quite a long time that we've been watching. And so they were not as accelerated to say the COVID vaccines might have been.
0: So what month should babies get the vaccine then? Is it based on their age or is it based on the the season in South Dakota? Should they be getting them in September and October? Help us figure out the details.
1: Yeah, that's a a great question. And one of the things that we're watching, traditionally, if you go back pre-COVID, RSV was very reliable, causing issues in December, January, February, maybe into, into March. It kind of followed the, the influenza season pretty good. COVID and all of the changes that we had with COVID put a little bit of a wrench in that, and we saw more RSC outside of that time period. We're thinking we're going to come back to more of a true seasonal uh, impact with this uh, uh, now with COVID uh, rates lowering, but we don't know for for sure. And so these vaccines probably aren't going to even be out until uh about September 1st or so. So we've got a little bit of time to to decide and watch the rates a little bit. Certainly rates right now are still quite quite low, so we have a little bit of a little bit of time. Um and so probably about the same as what we recommend with flu shots, getting them in into the Kind of the October time frame is probably going to be I- ideal, but continue to kind of follow along as, as we follow the patterns.
0: Can babies get the flu shot and the RSV shot at the same time, or do they have to separate them or spread them out?
1: Yeah, and that's a that's another great question, and and it comes down a little bit, and the, the same question comes with the adults. And so, with, like, with adults, um, you know, can you get the flu shot and the RSV shot at same time? same time. Certainly the they seem to be um uh, you get an immune response when you give it at the same time, but you may get a little bit increased reactions if you give them at the at the same time. And so it depends a little bit on, you know, I would rather folks uh get both vaccines at all. And if that means getting them at the at one time, then that's fine. If if, if you're somebody who would rather spread things out a little bit and and be able to not have as much reaction to one uh, and then get the second one that's certainly a viable option as well.
0: Do you know what kind of reactions we might be looking for in either the older adults or the babies and when is it a problematic reaction?
1: So probably the you know the most common reactions like any vaccines are going to be local Local reactions, pain and pain and swelling at the reaction site, like any vaccines, probably the most common. Perhaps a little bit of the of, uh, fever, those sorts of things. Uh, the thing that we look for probably mostly is the Guillain-Barré reaction, similar to what you see with the flu shot, and so that's when you start getting a little bit of weakness or, or numbness uh, because it, it causes some inflammation of the longer longer nerves, and that can happen. With these shots, what do you what you also got to keep in mind, though, is that the actual diseases themselves cause these reactions. You know, you can get Guillain-Barré from influenza or from RSV as well. So, by actually by preventing those infections, you're reducing the the rates of those. And so you you'll be willing to trade a few cases from the vaccine itself, because you're preventing more of them by giving them the the vaccine, but that is probably the most serious one that we we watch for other than allergic reactions that can happen to anything, I guess.
0: All right. As always, uh, information about a new RSV vaccine for older adults and for babies. Talk to your pediatrician. That is always a great way to go for details about uh, timing and availability near you. Dr. David Basil is a pediatrician and internal medicine specialist at Avera Health. Dr. Basil, thanks again. It's always a delight to talk to you.
1: All right. Thank you.
0: You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. What happens if you get a diagnosis and the closest place to get treatment is hundreds of miles away? Or what happens if the closest place to get diagnosed is hundreds mi- of miles away? When barriers go up, equal access to health care goes down. That's what the Walking Forward program is seeking to address. It is a cancer disparity research program serving Native Americans in the Northern Plains, and it is the brainchild and passion project of Dr. Daniel Peter Wright. He's a radiation oncologist at the Monument Health Cancer Care Institute, and he is with us now from SDPB's Black Hill Surgical Hospital studio in Rapid City. Dr. Peter Wright, welcome. Thank you so much for being here.
2: Well, I appreciate your interest, Laurie, and uh, looking forward to spending a few minutes with you and your audience today.
0: Where did your interest in this uh, come from? Was it from the problem itself that you were trying to solve or from a different angle? Tell me about that.
2: So I grew up in the state and was in, in the other on the eastern side of the state. My dad's a retired physician. He also grew up in poverty and, and knew growing up that uh, there was You know, a health disparity issue, or at least became aware of it, especially in medical school. And then I was in the University of Wisconsin for 10 years where I did my training, a fair amount of research. And one of the reasons I wanted to relocate to the Western side is that there might be an opportunity to address some of the significant cancer disparities um, that unfortunately the Lakota population experience um, in the Northern Plains.
0: What are some of the underlying or structural issues that you need to address? Because this is not a simple problem to solve.
2: No, it's a really complicated issue, and, and we you know one could argue we've only, you know, tapped the, the the tip of the iceberg, so to speak. So it, I mean, part of it it's that's multifactorial. Part of it's underfin- underfunding of Indian health service. Um, there are a lot of economic and social stressors, you know, where we and in some parts of the tribal communities, there's high rates of smoking. Um, there can be a mistrust of Western medicine just through some of the. You know, unfortunate events that have happened over the last 100, 150 years—the you know, the the genocide, the, the all the trauma that's gone on. So I think, you know, rightfully so, there's been a distrust of Western medicine. So when I relocated here in 1999 to Rapid City, it didn't take long to figure out that most of the Northern Plains American Indian population, Lakota, that we were seeing, were presenting with advanced stage as a cancer. So even before we wrote for the first grant. I spent a lot of time down in Pine Ridge, Rosebud, Shine River on occasion, trying to understand what some of issues were that prevented patients preventing with earlier stages of cancer. We all know the importance of the cancer screening for screen-detectable cancer. At that time, it was colorectal, prostate, cervix, um, and breast. We'll talk about lung cancer later, but so mm-hmm. the idea was when we submitted these grants. And the whole reason this kicked off was back in 2002, the National Cancer Institute issued these grants for community cancer centers. And the premise was that or those that were eligible needed to have access to a disparate population. That was obviously the Lakota nation out here to come up with an intervention that may have an impact and hopefully Encouraging or changing the stage of presentation, and have state-of-the-art treatments available um, that would be effective.
0: So don't how do I keep does, talking
2: because I can ramble a lot? Sorry.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's just so important. To, it's got to be so heartbreaking to see somebody come forward with a cancer that could have been treated if they had presented and been diagnosed months earlier or even years earlier. If it's a slower developing cancer, that has to be just agonizing to see as a physician, so tell me what Walking Forward is then. How is it seeking to address this problem?
2: So Walking Forward, I would say, has three or four pillars. Um, Probably the most important part is our patient or community navigation program. So all of our staff that live in the tribal communities, shine River, Rosebud, and Pine Ridge, they're all enrolled members, which is helpful because they know firsthand what their local communities are experiencing. We used a model of patient navigation that is already commonplace on the reservation. They're called community health representatives or CHRs. So we use that model for navigation to go out into the community to do a lot of workshops on the importance of cancer screening, education, um, trying to assess barriers. This was all done on a, on a, on a number of research studies. Uh, we had a number of social scientists that were involved. We kind of knew what the issues were, but you had to prove it to the NCI um, what some of the underlying issues would be, and then the second part would be, well, what can we do about it? Typically, when you uh, go to a cancer disparity or any disparity talk, the, there's a large discussion on the on these are the underlying issues. We've really been equally interested in providing you know resources or solutions to those issues. So, a big part is patient navigation. Um, we had a a program. It's still ongoing now, but we would, we'll would go out into the community. We'll discuss particular type of cancer that's screen detectable. I think for a lot of patients, there's a fear of, you know, obviously, there's a fear of a cancer diagnosis, but part of it's education that if you're diagnosed at the earlier stages of disease, the treatments are more effective and oftentimes less toxic.
0: Mm-hmm. I want to talk about the successes that you've seen and... Um, advice you would give as this might serve as a model for other communities, other countries even, to follow, and start with doing this for the right reason.
2: No, absolutely, and so there's a there's an entity called Helicopter Research where we're gonna come in and try to save you and tell you what you need, and that's the wrong approach. The, the correct approach is to go in, listen. We've had a lot of community advisory boards talking circles to get a better understanding of exactly what the, the, the Lakota population would need. I mean, a prime example is lung cancer. So lung cancer is the you know the most lethal cancer in the U.S. It causes the most deaths. In the Northern Plains, American Indians, they have the highest death rate for lung cancer. So in this situation, unfortunately, for a number of people, the smoke, so they're at risk of developing lung cancer, up until recently, Indian Health Service did not offer what's called an LDCT. That stands for a low-dose CT scan. Basically, it's a one-to-two-minute scan without IV contrast. But it's the most effective way to screen for lung cancer. And, and so when we started this program four years ago, the screening rate for the Northern Plains population was less than 1% with the program that we implemented by doing a community intervention with these talking circles also with a physician intervention we've been we've been able to document a significant increase in screening rates rosebud is now offering those but that's one example of um, for a common cancer where we could have a significant impact and you know not everyone that who undergoes a lung cancer screening is going to be diagnosed with lung cancer but if they are it's going to be much earlier stage disease
0: yeah um, I feel like there's so much more to talk about. We're running up against our time, but I hope that you'll come back and we can uh, do more on this story because it's uh, wide-reaching, and I'd especially be interested in learning more about uh, getting Lakota Medical School graduates is part of this process. But uh, for now, Dr. Daniel Wright with the Monument Health Cancer Care Institute. I really appreciate you giving us the overview.
2: Thank you for your interest today. I appreciate it.
0: We'll see you next time. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Neil Fulton, Dean of the University of South Dakota School of Law, watched the vicious 2020 election cycle and all that followed it with one question on his mind What comes next? Did he find a concrete answer? Not quite, but in a recent article for the Washburn Law Journal, Dean Fulton argued that the United States stands at a crossroads and before us, five passable paths forward. He's with me on the phone now to explain what each path means and how likely it is that our country will head down one of them. Dean Fulton, welcome back to The Moment. Thanks for being here.
3: Pleasure to be here, Lori.
0: Thank you. So let's give uh, the listeners of this show a certain amount of credit where they understand that there is a lot of polarization, that there is a lot of political or policy paralysis, and that they know that it's not necessarily a new thing, that you know, America has a long history of division, even to the point of civil war. And let's start with some of these possible things. That could happen next. You do such a great job in this uh, piece, laying out the past and uh, what we saw in 2020. But one of the compelling things that might happen next, which seems sort of likely, is nothing—stasis. So let's start. Let's start there, if you don't mind. What what is the indication that doing nothing is uh, likely, and what could the impact be?
3: Yeah. I, I... So, I really looked at where we were. And a lot of people, as you say, have talked about that and tried to say where might we go. And the first obvious place that we might go to me is nowhere. That we might, because of our political structures and our political approaches, just kind of remain in some level of this bubbling animosity and not much policy progress um, for the foreseeable future. And I think that's a not unlikely scenario because our structure constitutionally kind of requires compromise. We're not so great at that right now, and it's just kind of easy to do nothing. The two big reasons I'm a little skeptical of nothing happened is, is if you look historically in the United States political environment, we don't stay the same. There is change, and it seems to me there's an increasing amount of social and political pressure that at some point releases in some way positive or negative.
0: Yeah. So did COVID, the, the, the political unrest of 2020, the uncertainty of the pandemic, that all had to sort of interrupt that stasis and send it tilting in ways that we're still recovering from. And I think some people think of staying the same as going back to what was before, like what was normal. But that's not really, is that possible, do you think, or we, we are, we're we're way beyond being able to go back prior to 2020? Yeah, I mean, I think
3: we continue to work into the future from the past always, right? And so you, you are not going to go back to pre-2020. Um, you just have enough events that impact us that way. When I talk about stasis, it's really just sort of, are you stuck in this spot that, however it's manifesting with the current political issues of the day, that we really aren't coming together collaboratively to attack them. We're really in a very polarized and paralyzed environment. Maybe it's playing out differently Mm -hmm. across the board and maybe post 2020, there are a few more people who are really willing to look collaboratively at how we solve problems. But unfortunately I feel like there may be a few more people who feel like, yeah, I'm going to choose up teams now because my, perceived team is somehow losing this larger political game. So yeah. do we go back to 2020? Not in you know, all ways, but I fear it's possible you could go back to just kind of the frozen, polarized environment you had.
0: Yeah, and I wonder um, if the exhaustion that people have that lingers from the pandemic and the extra work that so many people had to do makes political engagement, even more exhausting so let's talk about reform and renewal so first reform there are some some popular ideas about uh ranked choice voting and open primaries that would address electoral form in some way how how likely is that some of those reforms will actually come to pass
3: it's tough because change is tough you know and you have a lot of interests that want to keep the current system the way it is um there's a lot of money in politics. And so to try and do things that open up the electoral process to more participants, to making voting easier, kind of takes some money out of certain political consultants and other folks' pockets. You have increasingly a lot of jurisdictions, both state levels and at your local congressional district and legislative district levels that are very safe districts and so there's a lot of incentive from the parties in those safe districts not to give up their districts and make them more competitive even though that probably pushes people towards the center towards more collaboration and problem solving so you know i think there is potential but i think there's going to be a lot of resistance to change in general because we all know change is hard particularly systemic change and there are a lot of you know people who benefit from the current system who will have resistance to change it, whether, you know, from benign or more malevolent motives.
0: Yeah, and you say legal education may provide somewhat of a model in the area of form. What do you mean there as dean of the law school? What do you think legal education has to offer this conversation?
3: Well, I mean, your listeners are probably stunned that I'm an optimist on legal education as a model for how we can make things better, Laurie. But, you know, I really think that If you look at the opportunity for us to move forward productively, particularly with what I kind of tried to describe as a a vision of renewal, one thing legal education does really well is promotes fidelity to process over personal interest. And I think that is a thing that could move us forward positively on our political engagement to really think, how do I stick to the process even when it disadvantages me in this instance? I think that another thing that is really out there, is because of that commitment to process and a degree of forbearance that I think legal education develops, I hope there's more opportunity for more lawyers to be involved in public policy. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, in South Dakota, if you look at the legislature, lawyers are a little bit underrepresented, and I think legislators uh, being lawyers can be really valuable in there. And I think, you know, just lastly, commitment to neutral process is really significant.
0: There are some other options here which are basically surrendering to the strong or authoritarianism, and there are days when that seems so impossible because we are the United States of America, and there are other days when it seems like it's right around the corner. What do you want to say about authoritarianism and how easy of a path that would be to surrender to?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think the thing I would say about authoritarianism is the impulse to say it can't happen here in the United States, Sinclair Lewis wrote about that at the start of the 20th century. It can happen here, and um, I think that there's strong commitment in the United States to liberal democracy. That's important, but coming at it from the view that, hey, it just can't happen here is part of the problem. And so, you know, Tim Snyder has written about this very effectively. Madeleine Albright wrote a book about fascism before she passed I think if you look at some of the attacks on the media, attacks on open elections, just the way we engage in our political language, do we dehumanize opponents as opposed to critique ideas? Those are things that are tools of authoritarianism that creep in a pretty greater amount than when I first got exposed to politics. And I think that the danger of tipping points is you get to them slowly, right? I mean, the the um you ride up to the top of the roller coaster before you go down over from the tipping point and the danger is do we recognize that we're going up on our way to the heading down before we do something to stop it
0: yeah you right authoritarians delegitimize and dehumanize political opponents authoritarians encourage political violence authoritarians target or co-opt the media reward loyalty above all use nostalgia to emotionally connect their adherence to an idyllic past that must be restored. Some of that sounds pretty familiar. It's not uh, out of the realm of possibility even here at home.
3: No, unfortunately so. I mean, you know, as they looked at all these scenarios, you know, I didn't really come to them and then go look at current events to try and find examples. I sort of looked at current events, and those were the trends. that leapt out at me. And I was really surprised that it felt like you could make a case for authoritarianism as what comes next in the United States, because it just doesn't seem like it could or should be, but it is possible.
0: So let's uh, talk about renewal and, uh, you know, reimagining our political identity, which sounds hopeful, but it also sounds like hard work, but it sounds like important work. Tell me a little bit, and you touched on a little bit, but what more do you want to say about... Americans sort of reimagining what it means to engage in politics.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that renewal to me is obviously the most hopeful but the most difficult scenario because it it requires both individual and systemic work. I think as individuals, there's a real need to reimagine our political identity. Are we able to step back from the competitive aspects of modern politics and engage? in what Aristotle and others described as civic friendship, this viewing of your community uh, in a certain way and engaging with them in a certain way that transcends issues of the moment. I think really working on virtues as individuals of civility, how do we engage and treat people? And I think one of the things that's most pronounced to me as you think about reimagining our political identity is the idea of forbearance forbearance that we're able to let individual slights or disagreements go and not make them existential. I think one of the things that's really striking to me is we tend to take every concern to about DEFCON 2, maybe all the way to DEFCON 1, right? And (laughs) so doing some of the, hey, I didn't get what I want or, or I was treated badly to step away from that, and give some degree of grace and forbearance to people on the other side. If we think about our individual political identities with those ideas at their root, I think it makes it a little bit easier to then start reframing our political engagement to move towards, you know, the classical Republican idea of, of civic engagement and deliberation, small mm-hmm. r in that iteration of Republican, that a lot of classical philosophers love, right, that the value of deliberation is inherent, that that process of wrestling with what matters makes us better as individuals and as a population. It's also an idea that, you know, there are philosophers write about in the idea of an infinite game, that it's a game not played to be won, but to continue the playing. And I think as we think about American politics, would we be better if we step back and said the goal isn't really to win, but to keep playing as a society.
0: Mm. All right. Well, it's called What Comes Comes Next. It's an article in the Washburn Law Journal, but we have a link with free access for you. That we'll put up on our website, sdpb.org news after the broadcast. It's a great conversation starter, or even with your book club, you could spend some time talking about this. Dean Neil Fulton with the USD Knudsen School of Law. As always, we appreciate your time and insight. Thanks. Thanks so much, Lloyd. Let's take a moment to head out into the South Dakota landscape on our bicycles. The love of cycling in the Pier, Fort Pier area led to the creation of the Oahe Wheelman, the group then hand-built a trail out of the rough central South Dakota prairie. SDPB's Justin Kohler talked with the Oahi Wheelman president, Mike Mueller, and trails director, Uriah Stieber, about the club. They echo something here that perhaps all of us know, but all of us need to be reminded of now and again. Getting out, doing that thing that you love, matters.
4: I'm trying to remember... When I started getting really serious about riding and what it felt like to then make it a part of who I am and what I do sometimes when circumstances aren't perfect.
3: There's definitely, obviously with anything, there's days that you don't wanna. And when you get out there in it, it's so easy to
4: just find yourself smiling. You don't need to be inspired to do it all the time, but you have to be dedicated to doing it all the time. Now that I have
3: kids, to show my kids that you don't have to be like, oh, I'm an adult now. I don't
1: do these things. That's why I think cycling's so important too, is just it keeps you
4: going and it gives you a reason to, to keep moving. I've never
3: regretted going on a ride.
4: It always feels good once you're done doing it. Sometimes it's the difference in a day as well. Had I slept in, had I skipped that, I may have been lethargic the rest of the day and not that inspired, but if I go out and ride, I'm gonna have a good day.
0: We will have more from the Oahe Wheelman tomorrow, but if you'd like to see the full feature, including those sweeping landscapes of Central South Dakota, head online, sdpb.org slash dakotalife. More in the moment is coming up after the break. Kevin Wooster is with us. You're on listener-supported SDPB Radio. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, you are probably used to hearing Kevin Wooster's experienced voice and insights on SDPB. Last month, he lent his voice and experience to South Dakota Newswatch and was quoted in a piece written by Bart Fancook. At that time, Kevin spoke about something he has seen firsthand, a lack of transparency in Governor Nome's office, particularly from the Game, Fish, and Parks departments as it relates to responding to media interview requests and once the article went up the hammer came down from the governor and her team kevin found his facts his career even the length of his retirement under fire well this week kevin writes about the experience for sdpb in his weekly blog it's called on the other hand and you can find it at sdpb.org wooster but he is with me now to talk about it from our studios in rapid city kevin welcome back thanks for being here
4: Hey, Laurie, as I was listening to your segment with Neil Fulton, I had to think, it must be a different experience for you to read his polished law review article in advance of the segment versus my hastily thrown together, partially (laughs) finished, sloppy blog draft that isn't yet finished that you get to read. Those must have been two different reading experiences for you.
0: But I'm sure he has a draft somewhere, too. I feel privileged that I get to watch your mind work. Uh-huh. As you work on this and revise, so okay, uh, right. yeah, we're just let's f- go with that. <laughs> <laughs> Governor <laughs> Nome's office said the the whole article, the whole piece, was a pack of lies and um, uh, with a capital L I E. Yeah. <sighs> But you have experienced firsthand, especially the Game Fish and Parks Department, um, not being able to talk to you like they have in years past. Tell me what has changed over the years, or, you know, what has changed, I'm sorry, with this administration?
4: Well, and, you know, lie is, I always, we throw lie around all the time, especially on social media. Uh, Lie is something you know is untrue, and you say it or write it anyway. Obviously, this wasn't a lie. any of the things that I said or the other sources in this story, the good, credible sources, good people, not perfect. Sometimes you might say something that isn't entirely true or you might be a little bit wrong in your perspective and things. And I always, and I think unlike the governor and her office, I always leave open the possibility that I don't have all the answers. I don't know everything. And, you know, it's possible. That's my perspective. But you know, I wrote my first wildlife story dealing with the Game Fish and Parks Department in 1974. And I've been writing them ever since. So I've got a pretty good look at that agency, in particular state government in general. And I, as I say in, in, uh, in the blog, I, and I think I've s- I said in Bart's story, I believe Governor Noem in 2018 when she said she was going to be the most transparent uh, administration we've ever had. and. It kind of started out that way and then it went downhill and i think it's not very open right now i think they are um, more inclined to be open to the national conservative media than they are to you know with some exceptions i'm sure there's some access uh, that uh, i'm not talking about but uh, game fish and parks for example when it's very hard to get an actual phone interview right now with anybody uh, or an in-person interview have To go through the communications office, which is was never the case before, <clears throat> you know, I was always able to go directly to biologists, fisheries guys, wildlife, you know, parks managers, people like that, uh, and do interviews and write stories. And mm-hmm. for decades, that's how it was. And it's not that way right now. And it,
0: you know, my experience has problem. been sometimes you could go directly to your source with the relationship that you developed, and then they might say, yeah. Well, we have to clear it with the public information officer, but that would almost be you know, a precursory step. Now it's, sure. you know, it's go through this person, send a list of questions, which of course journalists don't do, and, um, and then the answer is no, or maybe there's a statement via email. What does the public lose when public officials do not come and answer questions from professional journalists? And I ask that because the argument is, we're open and transparent because like never before we're on social media you can find yeah. information online this is a you know this is the olden days when you had to go through journalists to get your information now it's directly there but why doesn't a, a back and forth interview with a reporter still matter
4: i i understand why they'd rather just do tweets and do facebook posts and send out news releases and, and, you know, make public appearances where, they, you know, the governor has a limited uh, opportunity, gives a limited opportunity to reporters to ask questions. But that's one-sided. That's, that's sanitized. That's the side of the story they want to tell. And the thing, the beautiful thing and the sometimes intimidating thing to politicians about opening yourself up to a professional journalist is we sometimes ask questions they don't particularly want to answer or they want to answer in a certain way. And when you send, you know, an email question list, that's not the same as asking questions, doing follow-up questions, challenging the responses, and having an actual interview, which is how you actually get the issue covered. And if if there's something that needs to be dug into, you dig into it.
0: I would also add that a professional journalist like yourself has more than one administration under his belt. You've got institutional knowledge. You've got experience. This is your job, to spend um, your time, <laughs> hours and hours and hours. Uh, uh, you know, thousands of hours of your life have been dedicated to understanding how state government works, particularly in this in this area. Um, that's a lot more than what can be found on a website that you dug up and and hit print on if you're a citizen who has concerns about how things are are being administrated. um, There's a huge difference there, I think.
4: Uh, There is a huge difference. And and over the many years, you know, the, the advantage of being here a while, a long time and hopefully you develop a reputation for not being perfect but for being honorable and mm-hmm. that you try to do the best job you can every day to find as many facts and to reveal as many truths as you can, is that people are willing to talk to you, and there are there is more direct contact. I can't tell you over the years how many times I've called somebody with Game Fish and Parks or with other agencies because I had the, later on, I had their cell phone. Previous to that, I had the home phone or numbers where I could reach them a mountain lion, uh, you know, sighting in this downtown spearfish or something, and I'd call at 8 o'clock at night to the person I knew would respond, and we'd have that in the next day's paper. And, uh, you know, there's a safety factor there sometimes that's important. Timeliness matters. Yeah. But these people are specialists, and they do a job that's special, and they should be the one in most instances to talk, not a public information officer.
0: Yeah. And I have had employee, state employees say they're just writing this out. They're writing out this in administration. They can't talk now. They're looking forward yeah. to the day when they can share their knowledge with the public, especially on these non-controversial things in the future. Well, this is worth exploring more in the future, but you can read Kevin's piece at sdpb.org. You can read the South Dakota Newswatch piece at sdnewswatch.org dot org. Um, Kevin's not the only journalist who is quoted in that article. Dave Bordewijk, South Dakota Newspaper Association, um, the editor from Brookings and from um, the Black Hills, which I'm now forgetting. um, Thank you. And um, lots to read and contemplate. Okay, Kevin. Thanks. We'll see you next week. Thanks, Laura. Well, tomorrow, the Full Circle Book Co-op in downtown Sioux Falls once again will be filled with the words and reflections of poet P.W. Covington. He'll perform on August 11th and 12th, 8 p.m. local time. That event also includes some special guests, Ray Perez Jr. and Angelica Mercado Ford. Well, Covington is in town to film a poetry documentary, which I am so excited to hear more about. But he took some time out of that busy schedule to stop by our Kirby family studio and say hello. Welcome. Well,
5: thanks for having us, Lori. Appreciate it. And uh, yeah, it's kind of a kind of a a, a concert film. Think of uh, think of an HBO comedy special, but uh, poets. But poets in South comics. Dakota.
0: Why yeah. the Full Circle Book Co-op? Why come here?
5: Well, I had a I had a friend uh, way back from when I was in the Air Force in the '90s, living up here. When I started. Uh, hanging my shingle as a writer, as it were. Um, he was one of the guys that encouraged me, hey, I think we have some poetry going on in South Dakota. Maybe you should try to find a place uh, to read up here. And I did, and I made some friends and uh, read at a few readings around town. Uh, and then when the Full Circle Book Co-op in downtown Sioux Falls opened, I... Um, Jason and Sean invited me out to read, and uh, I've just fallen in love with the with the indie poetry scene uh, yeah. here in Sioux Falls. Yeah.
0: All right. So we've been talking about a lot of politics today, and now we're transferring into poetry. But poetry can also be political because we've got our own poet laureate controversy here happening oh. in the state, which I can tell you all about uh, off mic. But my question to you is like that intersection between a poet having something to say... That matters in right. our lives, whether it's um, you know a summer day or whether it's political upheaval. Why does poetry matter in this day and age?
5: Well, I, I don't know if we can separate poetry from politics. Um, foundationally and underneath everything else is um, you know the freedom we have of speech and expression in this country, and we have to stay. Uh, I'm I'm a military veteran. We have to stay eternally vigilant of that foundational right that every other right relies on. Um, And everywhere I go in this country, no matter what the local prevailing politics are, there is a community of people who are expressing themselves and who are striving to do that in more artistic and more... uh, approachable and accessible ways uh, from from folks out in San Francisco having poetry readings at midnight at the BART station to small towns in Texas where there's there's online writing circles because maybe the library is now being uh, threatened and challenged.
0: Yeah. I would love to hear some of your work. Did you bring anything to read for I us?
5: I did. I, ha- I have a uh, short piece here. Actually, I have, I have two short pieces, um, but here's one that's really not very political at all. Um, about some of our favorite things, as I know broadcasters and entertainers both enjoy a good cup of coffee. (laughs) Uh, This is called French Pressed Coffee. She gave me the gift of fresh pressed coffee. Still at that stage, getting to know each other, reaching slightly past the familiar, aching for requited relief... French press method is zen for coffee. The perfect combination of activity and patience. Doing and not doing. A watched pot does indeed boil, but it is the unexpected that we crave and fear. And in time, nestle in our palm And recline with to savor like French-pressed coffee.
0: Mm. All right. P.W. Covington, Full Circle Book Co-op, Friday and Saturday, 8 o'clock local time with some really outstanding special guests. I'm hoping you'll sit tight for a minute. And after we close the show, maybe record another couple poems that we can uh, play after you're gone. But... For now, you want people to come down. Are they part of the documentary? If they come down, are they yes. on camera? Are we're, they
5: in the? We're getting. We're having a three-person camera crew and a professional sound engineer come in, contracted through a professional production company out on the West Coast. And uh, it, we're going to be doing things maybe a little bit different from a regular poetry reading, just because the cameras are going to be there and we're going to be be shooting and. Uh, we are super excited to showcase what's going on in Sioux Falls uh, with spoken word. Yeah. and uh, yeah, so come on out; it'll be fun. If uh, you've ever been in a in a film or a movie or anything like that before, uh, it's a great chance to kind of uh, see maybe why uh, why you haven't been in one before.
0: <laughs> it's, it's a groovy place downtown there. It Sean is. Sean Lister is doing a great job. Love Sean. Come and read for us before. So, uh, thank you. It's nice to meet you. Uh, That is our show for today. We hope that it served you. From all of us on South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm your host, Lori Walsh. Thank you for listening.